This is my Faith Walking Journey podcast with Jim Harrington, episode 20, a conversation with Trisha Taylor. For over 25 years, Jim has been serving the church in Houston, Texas by working to mobilize individuals and congregations into collaborative efforts that are designed to serve the common good. In this podcast series, Jim is talking to community leaders in Houston and across the country who are working to build more loving communities as a systemic solution to the big challenges that our communities face today. Now, let's get into this conversation with Trisha Taylor. I am Jim Harrington. Welcome to My Faith Walking Podcast. I'm really glad to welcome back my friend and colleague, Trisha Taylor. Um, um, Trisha and I have worked together for a long time, uh, and she's a, an ally and a colleague in this, uh, in this mission that I'm on to, uh, to build more loving communities in our, um, in our cities today. Um, this podcast has been for a long time now about a deep belief that the, that we face lots of problems in our society, in our culture, in our families, in our communities. Uh, and um, I believe that a mature kind of love, the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, we're in a, a principled way. We actively love God and neighbor and stranger and, yes, even our enemies. Uh, that that's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, not some mushy, sentimental uh, love, not some uh, uh, love that kind of exists in an echo chamber where everybody around me sees the world that I see, the way that I see it and does life the way that I do it, but in but but where that love can be expressed in a really wide ranging kind of of diversity. I've been I've been conducting a series of conversations with friends in Houston and from across the country who are working to collaboratively create more healthy, loving communities. And uh, Tricia is uh, not only my colleague and ministry partner, she is my friend and in many ways my teacher in this journey. And so it's always good to welcome uh, Tricia back to the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. It's always good to be with you. So um, I wonder, you know, I just I just spoke for you. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I try not to do that. Uh, I wonder what your uh, t- uh, what you would say about as we get started today, uh, what you would say about this idea of building more more loving communities and that as a as a kind of uh, not I don't want to use the word solution like there's a fix, uh, but but like it's an undergirding kind of um, reality that that has to exist if our communities are going to thrive. Yeah, I used to think it was a really um, great idea, really compelling, a fun thing to be part of, I now am convinced it's our only hope. And I also think that, you know, Jesus is probably thinking, I've been trying to say that from the very beginning. What do, what do you think it was all about? And so that's where I am now. Yeah. And uh, as we work with uh, pastors and congregations and individuals in our in our ministry and in your practice and my coaching, um, I don't ever find, I, I hardly ever find anybody who says, I don't want to be a more loving person. Um, what I find is that people don't have really good, clear strategies for, for acknowledging where they are and for some vision of growing to where they might uh, might be able to come, and so uh, so today in our podcast, we we've agreed that we're going to uh, kind of put on display something that uh, each of us is working. Uh, each of us is working on something different, um, and are working on that as our own journey toward becoming more loving people. 
um, uh, on early, I guess on January 2nd, I posted on my Facebook that my word for the year uh, is compassion. And I didn't make any New Year's resolutions. I have goals for the year, but I didn't make any New Year's resolutions. But, but what, I, what I am really uh, aware of uh, is that I believe that compassion is a fundamental component of really mature love. And uh, there are settings and places where I can be very compassionate. And there are other places where I find myself being very judgmental or being very afraid. Uh, and both of those, uh, it seems to me, stand in the way of, um, of love. Um, and so uh, what I'm working on this year is growing my capacity to be more compassionate, not just in moments when it's easy, but in moments when it's really, really hard. So when you think about compassion as being your word for the year, what is it that you mean by that? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so it doesn't mean the the soupy, sappy, uh, feeling sorry for, feeling sad for, something bad happens to you, and oh, that, isn't that terrible, isn't that awful, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm talking, so compassion comes from two words. Uh, it it mean it actually what it means is to 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 suffer with or to 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 join yourself into another person's suffering and so for me uh maybe the best english word that's kind of a synonym not quite but almost is the word empathy uh it's where i uh, the story that i've heard told is the difference in uh sympathy and empathy is that sympathy is you walk by and somebody's fallen in a hole and you say oh gosh that's awful but empathy is somebody's falling in a hole and you get down in the hole with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, it's in that, that kind of way that when I'm with someone who's suffering, when I'm with someone who's struggling, when I'm with someone who uh, hasn't reached a level of maturity that they aspire to and their, and their, their relationships are, are struggling or they're broken, they can't connect to God. I want to be, rather than being judgmental or fearful about that, I want to be compassionate about that. I learned a lot about that, about myself early on. This is not a new journey for me. I think there are two things that I'd say about um, just about my own journey. One is I grew up in a Christian subculture that taught me to judge people. And I, I can't really point back to anything that's where a pastor or a teacher stood up and said, so good Christians judge people who aren't Christians. Uh, but it was the, it was the, it was the, uh, the water that we swam in. We knew the truth, and if you didn't know the truth, and our job was to tell you the truth, and if you didn't believe what we told you, then there were there were relational, emotional consequences. We might stay after it for a while, but after a while, you know, if you didn't do what we wanted you to do, there was a uh, the language Dallas Willard uses about judgment in Matthew seven is that it it casts you beyond the pale. You know, it's like you were put on the outside. Yeah, and, and I just learned that. I, I, I can't look back and say, I learned this in this class or with from, it was just a way of life that I saw modeled and that I practiced. So that by the time I, I became an adult, it was, just, it was just a part of who I was. Uh, the place that it got on really full display and where I learned something about growing compassion was um, 15 or so years ago when Betty and I were, um, uh, as a part of the ministry that we did, we lived in community with a group of young men and women who were in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And uh, many of them had awful, awful stories of, of 
neglect and abuse uh, in their families of origin. Uh, they had awful things that had happened to them uh, as the as a result of their uh, of their addiction. Uh, and I found that you know I, in a, a nanosecond I was right there in the hole with them. It was like oh god, I, uh, uh. Uh, and then, so we, we, we've, the last several uh, um, podcasts have talked about our work in family systems. And then the work in family systems really kicked in and helped me because what I recognized was my initial response of compassion quickly turned to, let me get you out of that pain. Let me fix you. Let me help you. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine that anybody who's listening has any good experience with trying to change other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that typically doesn't work. And, and there's a sense in which early in our compassion, I want to fix you so that you will feel better. But pretty quickly it turns to, I want to fix you so that I will feel better about you being in pain. I don't know in the early days if I could distinguish those two things. I think it was some of both, uh, but it was like a hot jumbled bowl of spaghetti that was just all mixed up together. But what I discovered, and this is really embarrassing to say, but it is true. What I discovered over time was if you wouldn't let me get you out of your pain, if you wouldn't take my advice, if you wouldn't do what I wanted you to do, I got really pissed off. Uh, you know, and, and that would show up in one of two ways. Either I would become more aggressive about getting you to do what I wanted you to do verbally. I'd talk louder. I'd say it more often. Or You what could I, be very persuasive. Very persuasive. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the master at that, as you know. And, and or what I would do is I would distance. You know, I would just, I would, I would quit meeting them for coffee. When they'd show up in the house, I'd be polite, uh, but there was no, you know, real connection. It was like, I'm done with you because you won't do what I want you to do. And one day, Tricia, I had, um, I had one of the guys tell me that. And it was humiliating. That still stirs up emotion for you. It does. It, uh, and it stirs up emotion in me, but it also is a great picture for me of the learning process. So I wasn't waking up in the morning and saying, I'm going to fix you. You only get my compassion if you do what I want you to do. I, that was invisible to me. Um, well, in fact, Jim, I think you were doing what we were trained to do. Right. right, right, which is to to fix people. I mean, you and I both went to school to learn how to do that. <laughs> Other people might not have gone to school to learn to do that, but it's a really powerful message we grow up with. Yeah. So uh, that began a lifelong journey. I mean, that was 15 years ago. That began a long-term journey. Uh, and I've made a lot of progress. I mean, I, you would say that. Everybody who knows me would say that I've made a lot of progress. And what, sure. I also, what I also recognize, and I, maybe I've recognized it in particular of late because of all of the drama and trauma and polarization that's going on in the culture uh, related to the, to the recent election uh, and all of the stuff that grows out of that. I, I, um, I, I'm learning again uh, that, so I don't know how to say this, but like with my peeps, I can be compassionate. 
I get a little. I get out of uh, out of my comfort zone to a little bit of diversity, and it's more challenging. And I get to a lot of diversity, and it's almost impossible. And I get to real extreme diversity where people really have a fundamentally different view of the world than I do. And fear or judgment are almost the only two things that I have any access to in the moment. Um, and what I'm learning, uh, not judge myself for that. Uh, to tell the truth about that, mostly, you're the one who taught me the term in the rearview mirror. Mostly, when I, um, when I come away from one of those experiences, I, I've, I've made enough progress that I can thought, ah, I did that again. I ran away, or I got combative and judgmental. And so then in that rearview mirror, uh, there's some work I do. <laughs> and you do that you do that work um, from a place of compassion for yourself. It's not that you then turn the judgment you had maybe toward others and turn that on yourself, but you also stay in a compassionate space with yourself, in a space of learning. Well, that may be the most recent learning. Uh, what is, uh, I don't know how many years ago, but it hadn't been very long ago that I first heard the term self-compassion. And I can remember thinking, what is that? <laughs> uh, and and even, even if I could define the words, it was like, how would you do that? Yeah. Well, because what we automatically think of is self-pity or, well, I'm just letting myself off the hook. And self-compassion is something really different from that. Right. And for me, what that looks and sounds like in my head and in conversations with other people is I'm, I'm, I'm living a really big life and I'm working toward... Uh, being a guy who really loves the way that Jesus uh, taught, teaches me how to love, uh, and compassion is a part of that, and I've made some progress, and today I messed up, but it's just all part of the learning experience, and you're in the game, and that kind of self-talk. And then, for me, the final piece, and then I want to turn to your word, the final piece for me in that is where I've made the most progress, and I, I wish I could tell you that I do this all the time. I probably do it two out of ten times or maybe three out of ten times. <laughs> but uh, two or three out of ten times, I'll go back to the person that I judged or the person that I ran from. And I'll just try to have a conversation where I'll say, I, I need a do-over from the conversation that we had last week. I didn't show up as my very best self. I didn't show up the way I wanted to show up. Sometimes I'll say, you know, uh, here's what I wish I had said. Uh, sometimes I'll ask about, I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge that I, I was judgmental and ask about what the impact of that was on them. But for me, that after the rearview mirror and then going back, what we call cleaning up a mess, is the place that the most powerful progress for me happens. I want to affirm that I have always um, experienced you as a compassionate person, and I've really seen a lot of growth in you. Um, in the area of compassion as well. So in some ways it was um, both affirming and confusing to me when you chose that word. And, you know, the affirming part was to remember that, that there is always more we can do to grow our capacity in anything. There's not ever a day that we just stop and say, okay, I've got that, check that off, go on to the next thing. But when you talked about having that word, um, I asked you about how you were seeing it differently. And one of the things that you said was that you were thinking about boundaries and compassion going together. And that seems to me to be a really important conversation because, you know, when you talk about that, uh, 
you know, someone has fallen in a hole. And so then sympathy is walking by and saying, oh, man, I'm sorry you fell in that hole. And empathy or compassion is the willingness to get down in the hole with someone. Then, of course, you know, the danger is that now we've got two people who can't get out of a hole. And um, so what are you thinking about in terms of boundaries and compassion that maybe is different or new for you? Uh, so my first response to that is I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, That's I, part of what you're going to explore this I, year. Yeah, this is what, part of what I'm exploring. Brene Brown did a little four minute video that was online a couple of three weeks ago where she talked about the, that the most boundary people are often the most compassionate people. Uh, and so, um, you know, I guess a couple of things come up, and and I'm actually going to do some reading as I begin the new year uh, about about this. But a couple of things that come up. Um, uh, one of them is uh, that I you know I can't get in the hole with everybody who comes along. Um, I, you know, you look at the life of Jesus, and for all the people that he healed and all the people that he connected to, there are thousands of people that he didn't heal and didn't connect to. And so uh, part of what I'm learning to do is to say, okay, this is a place where I'm going to choose to get in the hole. And this is a place where I, I'm going to listen. Uh, I'm going to express, um, you know, concern. Uh, but I, I'm not going to take that on in the way that getting in the hole would imply taking on. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. One of the ways I look at that is, you know, if compassion is to suffer with someone, um, as you say, I can't suffer with everyone all the time. And that that's not possible. And there will be people who will perceive me as uncompassionate if um, I don't suffer with them in the way that they want to experience that from me. But another thing that's been um, helpful to me, especially since, you know, part of my job is to suffer with people. And I'm also wired to do that. I've had to learn to be able to say, I can suffer with someone for a time. And then there's a point at which I say, that is not my suffering. That is their suffering. Um, and so I share it with them for a while. Um, the Bible talks about bearing each other's burdens. But then it goes on in just a couple sentences later to say that everyone has to carry their own load. And that is also true. Um, and I, I have my own suffering to carry that people graciously come alongside me with. Um, but everyone's suffering is not my suffering one coming out which is good but the other thing that helps me with is it helps me not hijack other people's pain to feel better about myself um some of us who are naturally compassionate can use other people's suffering to feel better about our ability to help or our need to be needed and so just paying attention to that i think is something that i've had to learn so uh, there's one story that I want to tell about that that I think illustrates what you're saying. <laughs> Early on uh, in, in the recovery work, as I described, I'd get really compassionate and then I'd want to fix and then I'd get really angry or I would distance. What I learned over time was to get in the hole with folks. Uh, but at the end of a conversation or the end of a season, to look at them and say, you know, I'm really sorry. This is really I can I can tell how painful this is. I wonder what you're going to do about that. 
I wonder, I wonder how you're going to get an action or are you going to get an action? And, and what I learned in my conversation was to get in the hole, but at the end of the day to give their suffering to them. I'm not responsible for fixing them or changing them. And, and then the, the challenge was if they weren't ready to get into action, you know, we all, we all resist change. And I mean, I, I know places in my own life where I need to change. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm procrastinating and I'm planning and I'm getting ready, but I'm not changing yet. And, and, um, I think one of the boundary things is to just to accept that everybody that we know is on a journey. And when Jesus says that we ought to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, for me, one of the fundamental things that I've kind of come to in that is that when I love you, like I love myself, I respect your right to take your own journey. Mm -hmm. Right. And, so if someone's not ready to change, I don't have to reject them or abandon them. I can just go into a mode of waiting and um, curiosity, see what happens. Exactly, exactly. So uh, there's a lot more we could say about that, but that is my word for the year. Uh, and I appreciate your uh, engaging me in that conversation. You have a word for the year. Actually, you have a couple of words for the year. <laughs> Well, I have, a, I have a word with a couple of modifiers, yes. Um, my word is, uh, is neighborliness, which is kind of a surprise word for me. It's not a every day. But I was in a conversation with my really dear friend, Janet, who sees the world more deeply and profoundly than I do. And um, about the middle of November, we were sitting by the bay, looking at the supermoon together, talking about our lives and talking about the world. And um, she reminded me that Brueggemann's solution um, to a lot of things is a conversation about neighborliness, about um, a different way of living, a way that says uh, that takes seriously the question um, or takes seriously the command of Jesus to love, love my neighbor as myself and to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Um, and honestly, when I first heard her use that word, my first thought was, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's about being nice. It's about being a good citizen. It's about, you know, comes over and wants to borrow some but then we started using the word disruptive to apply to neighborliness. And what I got present to really quickly is that the neighborly life, as maybe my civic association or even my church defines it, is not that exciting um, and is certainly not radical. But to think about neighborliness the way that Jesus did really is pretty disruptive. It says, you know, when Jesus said, love my love your neighbor, um, I think most people thought, love people that are in my friend group, that are in my tribe, that are in my family, um, that are like me. That's typically what we've met by neighbor. And then Jesus turns it on its, head, on its head by saying, and what I mean by that is that you love the enemy and you love the stranger. And... Um, that's just in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and then he comes and, you know, the guy asks him, well, who is my neighbor? And basically expects the answer, you know, that uh, your neighbor is the people you live among and, and um, who are like you. 
And Jesus tells this really compelling story about how, um, in the story of the Good Samaritan, how my neighbor is actually the person I don't want to be my neighbor. You know, about how my neighbor is the person I feel superior to, how my neighbor is the person I judge or I'm afraid of um, or dismiss or don't even think about. And, you know, I wonder how the guy felt after Jesus finished with the story. I wonder if he thought, you know, I wish I hadn't asked that. And so (laughs) disruptive neighborliness is what I'm thinking about. Yeah. So what does that look like then? And I, I can see your neighborhood in my mind's eye. Uh, you live on a cul-de-sac, and uh, maybe there are seven or eight, nine houses on your street. Uh, is that how you're thinking about neighborliness, like in your physical geographic neighborhood? So there are um, a few practices of neighborliness that are what I'm going to try to take on. It's a pretty long list, but I'm going to try to take all these on this year and build my capacity to um, uh, not see neighborliness as a feeling, but as a set of practices. And uh, most of these, I think, come from Bruggeman. Um, But this is the list uh, that I have. The first is Sabbath keeping, which was really surprising to me because it's about rest. And I tend to think of this in terms of activism and that I need to put more on my plate and do more and work harder. And instead, um, the practice of keeping Sabbath is crucial to this. Um, The second is table fellowship, or basically uh, that's just Christian language, I think, for eating with people and um, eating with people who are different. From me and people that I wouldn't normally intersect. And this is something that you and Betty do so amazingly well. And I've learned so much from y'all through the years. Uh, The third is healing, Um, looking for ways to bring healing into people's lives. Um, Last year, I worked really hard on um, growing my capacity to handle trauma. And um, this intersects with that, I think, Um, the idea of looking for ways. to be a healing presence. The fourth practice is empowerment and particularly the empowerment of people who are on the outside for whatever reason. Um, And uh, Bruggeman, I believe, says that one way we start to see this is when um, the status of women is elevated in a culture and that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, The fifth practice is compassion Um, We've talked about that. The sixth, again, was surprising to me uh, that it is the practice of joy and laughter. And that um, speaks to me about something really profound in all of this. And then to undergird all of this, um, Bruggeman says, and I also believe that this is a way um, that the church um, is at its best, uniquely positioned um, to to reflect these kinds of values. And as you know, my husband has just recently become the pastor of a church not too far from our neighborhood and looking to see what it looks like to, um, I'm just very curious about how a church can live in a neighborly way. Brueggemann says that an evidence of neighborliness is religion that is dynamic. That's a really compelling vision for me in the big picture. What is the internal reality that you're working on um, as you as you think about disruptive neighborliness? 
I think that the heart of neighborliness is the idea that we're all in this together. Uh. You know, that there's not a me and a them. There's not an us and them. There's not a sense that there are people like me who are doing it right, <laughs> and then there is everybody else. Now you recognize um, when you say that, that virtually <laughs> maybe half or maybe most of the people listening uh, would not would say, that's crazy. There, there is an us and a them. Yeah, and and I think Jesus is really clear that that's just not the case. I mean, he says in kind of a, um, you know, I wonder if he had a smile on his face when he said this, but, you know, he says, if you love people who love you, if you love people who are like you, what good is that? Anyone can do that. Um, he really diminishes that idea as being a standard to live by. Um but instead, neighborliness, I think, requires for me to step out of thinking about me and mine and my comfort and my convenience and my flourishing and maybe not even mine, but that of my children and my children's friends and the people I go to church with. But instead to think about um, you know, my neighborhood, my community, my city, my nation, um, we are all in this together. There's a there's a saying that I love that says, uh, "If nobody if nobody wins, unless everybody wins." Uh, exactly. That's what you're trying to catch. Yes. And and what's disruptive about this is that, um, and you asked me where am I? You know, where is the the big picture of where I'm working on this? It means confronting my autopilot the default way that I live, um, away from a consumer mentality, away from a thinking about the world in terms of um, resources are scarce, I need to get what's mine, I need to keep what's mine, my worth comes from what I have or what I know um, or what my status is, and then I will share with people um, but only what I have left over and only if they deserve it. And I have, I'm going to have to learn to confront that way of thinking. Um, that is going to be looking not just as what I do, but how I be. That's going to be a pretty different way to live. Um, and like you, the obstacles that I face are mostly judgment and fear. Um, you know a story about something that happened about a year ago where I was in the grocery store and the woman um, in front of me just uh, hauled off and, and slapped her kid and he fell to the ground. And I was confronted, like you, in a fairly humiliating way, I was confronted with the fact that although I consider myself to be a compassionate person, in that moment, I felt far more judgment toward this woman than I felt compassion for this child. And that was a really hard thing to see about myself. It surprised me. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a similar um experience where um, I saw some violence starting to unfold in a parking lot I was walking through. And I would have thought that I knew what to do in a situation like that, and I would have known how to take action to make things better. And what I discovered was that my fear 
almost paralyzed me. And again, it was hard to see that um, who I thought I was and who I turned out to be in that moment were really different. Uh, thanks for telling that story. I, I think that, uh, um, you know, those of us who know you, uh, you, you are one of those people that we all admire and look up to and see as one of the most loving people that we know. And uh, I think it's just helpful to, to hear, uh, I think it's a habit that we want to cultivate, that if we're going to grow our capacity to be compassionate or to be, uh, uh, live into a way of disruptive neighborliness, uh, we've got to learn to tell the stories about places where we fail and places where we didn't live into what we said. And we've got to learn to do that in a shame-free way um, so that we can uh, we can grow our capacity. When you look back on that, uh, on that, uh, on those experiences uh, today, can you see a different way that you might have shown up? Well, that's the whole trick, right? In in all of this, is that I've gone over it in my mind again and again and again until I can see ways of um, of learning to shift from judgment to compassion, from fear to courage, but also um, to root that in this sense that we are all in this together, even this mom and this little boy, even this couple that, you know, in the parking lot, that we are all in this together and I'm not separate from them. And I'm not... Um, it's it's hard to put words to, but the disruptive part of it for me is, um, you know, in both of those cases, there's a good case to be made for how I responded. Um, what I was present to was my own internal reality, um, what was happening in me. What I'm present to is that many, many people that I know would have said, you did exactly what you should have done. Uh, yes, and, you may and, have done, and there may be some truth to right, that. Right, you may have done exactly what you should have done, but what I love about this conversation is that you're questioning that, that you haven't lived into an autopilot that says, my safety is my highest value, uh, what, what's me and mine is my highest value, that you're actually engaged in, in a, not, not only an internal dialogue, but now a very public dialogue about uh, trying to interrupt that automatic way of thinking uh, that gives you then access to, you might have gone back and done the very same thing, but you might have done something different, and by having had this conversation, the next time something comes up, the, the work you've done internally will better prepare you for that. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that I may or may not do anything different. I am, I will be different. Um, and so it's been disruptive in my life, but um, I think it's also, the potential is that, um, and I think this is what Brighaman is getting at, is that if many of us will take on uh, a posture of neighborliness, it's disruptive to our dominant culture. Um, our dominant culture has always been the consumer mentality about me and mine and my convenience and my comfort. But what is emerging, or at least is more obvious, is also that the dominant culture is about, um, you know, you're not my 
rival or my opponent, you're my enemy. And because you're my enemy, I can mock you and I can insult you to your face and behind your back. And that um, I don't have any responsibility to you. You've made your bed. You can lie in it. Um, and uh, people are divided against each other. And so the practices of neighborliness, I think, are are not political practices for the most part. Um, are, are taking on a they are taking on a deep commitment to shalom, to you know the idea of of um, living for the common good, so that things can be the way they were intended to be um, for the most for the biggest number of people possible. And what we're calling that, what you're calling that, um, and I share your vision, is um, loving communities. It's a great conversation today. Uh, maybe what we'll do at the end of the year is come back and have a conversation to see how much progress we've made in, uh, in uh, uh, closing the gap between our vision for the word that we have for the year and what our actual practice has been. That sounds great. Yeah. Thanks, Trisha. It's always great to talk to you and to have you on the podcast. Uh, this is the second of several that we're going to do in a series. So for those who are listening, about every couple of weeks, we'll have a, a new one that we'll be posting out there. And uh, we're going to continue this conversation about building loving communities. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to this conversation on building loving communities. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd give us a review on iTunes and share it with your community. This helps more people find us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all other episodes in this series on Jim's blog, jimtherrington.com. Thanks for listening.